Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. What does it mean to be modern? And what is modernity anyway? I'm Ryan McDermott, host of Genealogies of Modernity. And I'm here to tell you that it's complicated. No, just kidding. In this show, we get a bunch of academics to actually venture answers to some really tough questions. What is genealogy? What are the sources of racism and anti-racism? You might disagree with our answers, but you can find them on Genealogies of Modernity, a limited series from Ministry of Ideas. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Sociology, a channel on the New Books Network. My name is Michael Johnston, and today I have Dr. John Joe Schlickman uh, on the show. He is an urban sociologist at DePaul University, Department of Sociology. Today, uh, we are on the show to discuss his most recent book, Showroom City, Real Estate and Resistance in the Furniture Capital of the World, which was published earlier this year by University of Minnesota Press. Welcome to the show, Dr. Schlickman. Thank you, Michael. Thanks for having me. To start off, could you tell me about what um, brought you to, literally brought you to um, High Point, North Carolina, to research their furniture manufacturing uh, background, um, as well as the overall um, the overall backdrop of High Point, North Carolina? So um, as far as what brought me to High Point, it was very interesting. Um I was a uh, graduate student at New York University. I was in a class with Neil Brenner. Um, We were writing a paper um, and we were studying uh, urban planner, um, an an urban planner with the idea uh, of city full non-cityness, this idea of uh, a place that is everything you want a city to be and nothing that you don't want a city to be. And um, we were looking at the the term exopolis, um, a place that is, um, you know, just like this, that, that, that is just beyond the city that has aspects of the city, but, um, but is what some people would call sanitized, safer, uh, more predictable, more suburban. Um, And, as we were studying this, I was a research assistant and intern at a homeless services organization that was building new first step supportive housing in Manhattan. Um, and as they were planning a site for their new housing, uh, 
it turns out that the site that they were proposing and the site that Mayor Rudy Giuliani had approved uh, was the site of a showroom district. And these showroom owners were very upset that Mayor Giuliani would put a, uh, a, a homeless services, a, a single room occupancy, f- supportive housing uh, building in their district, a district that they'd worked so hard as they saw it to make an, an inviting, user-friendly place to people from all over the world. And so I'm in this class, I'm working for this organization, and the, the, peop- the showroom owners in these letters said, if you don't shape up and get business-friendly, Mayor Giuliani, we're going to move to High Point, North Carolina. And that was the first time I ever saw that name. Uh, And so I was very interested at that moment by what on earth is this city doing that people in New York, business owners in New York are, are mentioning it in the same sentence as New York. And they were also mentioning it in the same sentence as Atlanta and Dallas. And I knew nothing about the showroom industry and the, you know, this merchandising. And so I was like, what on earth is going on here? So I wrote my paper for that class on High Point, North Carolina. And the more that I dug, uh, the more that I realized I had to take a trip there. So the first few pages of the book is my story of renting a car in New York and driving down to High Point. And once I walk the streets myself, I realized this is what I need to study for for a while. Didn't plan on doing it for 20 years, but uh, but but this was worthy of people knowing about this was worthy of sharing. And so that's what led me to move eventually uh, in the next year uh, to High Point. So, so I'm getting a sense that the method that you took, uh, the method or the approach that you took to better understanding in, in North Carolina, High Point, North Carolina, and collecting data for this study uh, was participant observation. Um, did you use any other methods to to collect data and get a better understanding of uh, of this place? Well, you know, a place that is. Um you know, as, as much of an outlier as High Point requires a pretty broad toolkit. Um, and so I threw at the case everything that I needed to, to, to understand it better. So this included, uh, sen- this included census data sets, uh, of course. This included um, archival research at local uh, libraries and museums. Um, it included a review of property changes using city directories, something that I wrote an article about kind of describing that process. Um, it includes it included uh, research of taxes, uh, tax records, um, you know, obviously hundreds of interviews and and um, Specifically, also, you know, go along interviews where I would mic people up and walk the downtown with them, um, as well as photo elicitation interviews where the interviews were guided by pictures and not by questions. Um, So, I mean, this is just some of the stuff, right, that that was required 
to get a well-rounded grasp of this case. And, um, and again, there, there's many besides, but this is a roots rooted in ethnography. Um, I think I, I really enjoy, uh, qualitative methods. I love being creative with qualitative methods. And I think this case required me to be creative with qualitative methods. Well, it seems to be very thick data. If I um, may <laughs> use some of you know Geertz's, uh, yeah, of uh, language, right? Uh, yeah, deep thick data. So that being said, it, it's not surprising that you spent twenty years in in High Point, North Carolina, um, and, and it's interesting that that Manhattan uh, sent you to High Point, North Carolina, with the show room industry, saying we're going to if, if you don't. Mayor Giuliani, if you don't get if if you don't get your ways right, if you if you don't do what we want you to do, we're going to go to High Point, North Carolina. So, what did you learn about High Point, North Carolina, and their furniture market, particularly the beginnings of uh, of their showroom industry? So, there were um, in the early early 20th century, there were furniture markets in Grand Rapids, Michigan. That was kind of the blue chip market. There were furniture markets in Chicago. Um, eventually, the Kennedy family would come to own uh, a lot of the uh, a, a, a controlling interest in the furniture market in Chicago. Um, there was a furniture market in New York. And um, in the early 20th century, as High Point began to use its large supply of lumber and produce uh, a lot of furniture, there were local business people as there were businessmen, as there were during that time in small cities all over the world that, I mean, all over the country that began to dream of, you know, can we do this here? Um, and so, from 1909 to 1920, um, the local elite worked to create a presence of a local showroom exposition um, that showed off the furniture that was being produced in, you know, the 200 mile radius of, of that area. And that market grew and grew until the 19 late 1950s, early 1960s, when it had become fully legitimate and very much on par with the others. And that's when the showroom wars kind of began in the United States in regards to which exposition was going to be the dominant exposition. And High Point, North Carolina ended up being the uh, winner in the end. Is, is that correct? Uh, something about the 1960s in Chicago, Illinois, um, quitting uh, their furniture exhibit in Grand Rapids, Michigan, discontinuing their exhibits. Is, is that accurate to say that High Point won out? Yeah, so High Point became the premier furniture exposition, which was, you know, which was amazingly the stated goal of the folks who started the exposition in, in 1909. Again, these are people, these are dreamers, right? And so they dream that one day uh, they would overtake New York and uh, Chicago and Grand Rapids. And they did in the early 1960s. And, um, you know, there's a lot of different possibilities for why this was, you know, if we had a laundry list, um, 
one key thing is obviously cost, um, cheaper real estate, less regulation. Uh, another piece of that list as to why they won the exposition um, is the amount of control that exhibitors could have in High Point over what they could have in, in a Chicago or in New York. Um, and then the fact that because the furniture, you know, furniture wasn't produced in Chicago, furniture wasn't produced in New York. And so um, there was an ability to have a really uh, a lot of innovation and a lot of collaboration between the production of the furniture and the showing of the furniture so that, you know, they were kind of done in conversation with one another. Um, oftentimes the, the exposition center for a given company um, would be, you know, down the block or even in the same building as that company. And so the, the, the exhibition of the furniture was part of the production of the furniture and all of the creativity that went into the production of the furniture could also find its way into the exhibition of the furniture. And, and that's really where High Point began to show advantage was when it enabled furniture to become a fashion industry. Um, and, and other, you know, the Chicago exhibition buildings just didn't offer that, you know, as one, as one market leader said in High Point, you know, they show, uh, keychains, you know, one exhibit and the next exhibit, they show televisions and the next exhibit, they show furniture. And of course, that's a little bit of an exaggeration. But the idea here is that, you know, these are just cubicles that are set up. And it was the complete opposite in High Point, that that creativity that was infused in the market in High Point was there from the beginning. Yeah, it sounds like Chicago and, and New York may have had too diverse of a of a of an identity, whereas High Point was able to centralize and, and focus specifically on furniture. Yeah. And I mean, this is one of the arguments I make about this idea that I call niche cities um, in, in an article I wrote. It's, it's not a focus of the book, but this idea that, you know, furniture isn't enough eggs for a New York or Chicago basket, but it certainly is enough for, you know, to, for a significant revenue stream for high points. So this ability to create a global niche and do it better uh, in this very narrow segment um, is, is something that would uh, be very important for High Point from the 1960s to the present day. This, this, this doubling down throughout the entire, uh, for throughout the past 70 years, there have been countless High Point leaders who have said there is no plan B. <laughs> this, this is it. This is who we are. This is what we do. You know, uh, it's, it's kind of like uh, an athlete who says, no, I just rebound or I, you know, I just, you know, I, I'm just a great pitcher. Or I, I, and, and so that we are going to double down. We're going to become the very best that we are in this tiny little area. And we are going to be known across the world for this tiny little area. Yes. And even furniture is pretty complex. You write about the complexities of technology that are that advanced in making furniture and about how in a post-Ford era, this cluster-based manufacturing process shifted a bit. Um, you know, what, 
what uh, did this result in? Uh, you speak a little bit about outsourcing and, and changing of uh, changing of how furniture is, is both made and sold. Yeah. So one of the things I, I talk about in the book is, um, you know, when when U.S. companies began, number one, automating uh, and then also much like any other uh, industry, you know, the auto industry or whatever, once once they began uh, automating, um, it required capital. It required investment up front. Um, that not every firm had, right? Implementing new production technologies and automating production. And the same thing with, with you know, looking elsewhere for cheaper labor, for cheaper raw materials. Um, not every firm could play that game. So the, the larger firms began automating their factories. The larger firms began looking to other places for their labor supply uh, in in Mexico, in Asia. Um, and uh, this required teaching the labor um, how how to craft furniture. So, you know, many companies were were out there, you know, there's there's a there's a, a joke one of the exhibitors, one of the manufacturers tells about, you know, um, teaching uh, skilled, you know, creating skilled labor that knew the difference between different types of sandpaper and the different, the different grains of sandpaper and how to use different. And so all of those things that were being taught to the labor supply you know, the, the manufacturers at that time were saying, oh, well, isn't this great? We're creating more and more people uh, who can um, produce our furniture, never imagining, of course, that one day all of this skilled labor would pivot and create furniture themselves. Um, and, and that's when this, the big shift of deindustrialization began to take root. And, uh, and that, occurred slowly in the 1960s, 70s, 80s, began to speed up in the 90s and 2000s, just like in many other industries in the United States. Um, and, and suddenly you have international exhibitors showing their furniture at the high point market, which by the way, I'm using the name high point market because the market has changed its name many times over the years. It, it went from the Southern furniture market to the international home furnishings market to the high point market when high point wanted to begin to brand itself. Uh, so I used, I just used the term high point market here, but you have these international exhibitors coming and now showing their furniture produced in other countries uh, at the, at the high point show. And that's when everything just begins to change. And, and high point becomes much more of a globalized city. And it's interesting, the furniture designers and the furniture producers see themselves as gunslingers. And it it seems to be, you know, not too far off with the large firms that are coming in and, and selling their products and, uh, and the competition, requires them to to almost be you know gunslingers trying trying anything using a battery of methods as we talked about earlier to sell their furniture 
Yeah, and it's not so much even it's not even so much selling the furniture, but also producing the furniture. Uh, and you know, where do high point designers, product developers, and and manufacturers fit in this current globalized context? And so that was the gunslinger content uh, or the comment um, that we you know we need to do whatever we can do need to do to survive. And so one of the the one of the uh, product designers and developers said, you know, my banker asked me for a five-year plan. And I said, all I can give you is a five-minute plan because, I, because I'm a gunslinger. I'm trying to figure out what I can do that China can't do. I'm going to try, I'm trying to figure out what I can do that, that Vietnam can't do. Um, and so a lot of this has to do with, especially with new technology, uh, small scale, custom manufacturing for small batches, uh, rather than keeping large inventories of Ford stamped out any color you want as long as long as it's black merchandise, um, catering to high end uh, customers that want two of these or 20 of these or 30 of these, and they want it customized just for them. And new technology is allowing High Point to reposition itself as that. Now, High Point has always had the largest concentration of designers. Um, so there's always been this um, wealth of design knowledge there. But the question is, you know, how does this design knowledge adapt to the new context? And and is this design has this design knowledge gone from working in High Point uh, in the 1960s and 70s to now maybe living still in High Point, but really working with a, a manufacturer in Boston or Paris or. Uh, and so now there's this renaissance of, hey, with this new technology, we can design here, we can produce here, we can innovate here. And it took a very, 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 very long time for high point leaders to see this. There was a lot of frustration among small scale furniture designers, producers in high point in regards to um, the fact that this was a resource that was being squandered and overlooked that high point did not need to lure a creative class you know richard florida came to uh, greensboro in the in the aughts and was was talking to greensboro about his creative class idea and luring the creative class to greensboro and high point designers were saying we don't need to lure anyone here we're already all here no one sees us and we don't talk to each other because there's no fabric here for us because high point leaders had largely viewed the city as a deindustrialized place that now focused only on the exhibition of furniture. And that's a little bit of a broad brush stroke and an exaggeration, but certainly there was a feeling that um, high point is all about the exhibition and the exhibition had grown to 12 million square feet uh, and and had swallowed the entire downtown of High Point. And so as uh, the attention was being turned to the market, which only occurred at one point, it occurred four times, but then that was changed to two major markets per year. So you had the downtown 
with these showrooms that were owned by you know, showroom owners all over the world that were only open twice per year. You had these designers, you had these product developers, you had this expertise to produce, but it was being overlooked um, in, in the name of privileging the market and, and, and what became known as the six days that matter. Uh, you know, the only days that matter are, are these times when everyone from around the world comes here. And other than that, we just flick a switch and we're, and we're turned off in the eyes of many residents. Yeah, and the interesting thing about Side Point is they never had to rebrand. I, I think of the interstate uh, highway and how some cities out west had to rebrand as a result of people not coming to them anymore, or you know, Rust Belt cities that once deindustrialization happened, they had to rebrand. But but High Point, North Carolina, was able to remain steadfast on what they what they've always done, and uh, you know that being said. What is what is it about the uh, city that has allowed them to do this? Well, uh, so first of all, um, let me let me just kind of expand on what you said. You know, from the late 1980s through the 1990s, as there was a back to the city renaissance, you know, and people, you know, the, the early roots, uh, you know, the term gentrification was coined in 1964. Uh, we see it in the United States, you know, certainly in the 1960s, 1970s, but 1980s, 1990s, this idea of coming back to the city was gaining major currency and even small cities were trying to get in on the action. And you see quotes in High Point from local leaders saying, how can we uh, get resident, not you talk about visitors coming from the interstate highway the local leaders were saying, how can we get our residents to come downtown? Because there were so many visitors, right? The, the issue, the issue in high point was that there were so many visitors. And so, you know, the efforts, the money, the, the committees, the, the, the citizen groups, they were trying to get residents and people from the region to come to high point. Um, they already had people from over a hundred nations coming to the downtown. So um, I, I wanted to highlight that really peculiar problem that this city of, you know, at that time under a hundred thousand people uh, had. But so what was, why were they able to rebrand? Why were they able to keep their brand? I mean, they, they made a pivot from, Furniture manufacturing to furniture fashion, furniture merchandising, furniture design. Um, and I think, um, you know, they, they had to pivot in regards to manufacturing. And High Point built a bunch of industrial parks and other facilities that got into pharmaceuticals and other things like that, that replaced their manufacturing base. And of course, as with every other city in the United States, that that switch of manufacturing base resulted in a loss of income for workers uh, who were, you know, had incredible value to the furniture industry, but but did not have a lot of uh, value to the pharmaceutical industry. And of course, throughout all of this, there was no unionization in in North Carolina. So there was no, you know, fighting for 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 better labor. So High Point did have a crisis in terms of you know, High Point did face the same crisis that Flint 
Michigan faced in regards to the auto industry. It did have workers that were redundant and excluded, but where, you know, Flint, Michigan tried to create the auto world, the, the furniture, I mean, the, the automotive theme park in, in uh, downtown Flint. And so they tried to pivot to the uh, service industry by making a theme park of what their manufacturing industry was. So what High Point did was just kind of make that same pivot. They made a pivot towards the experience of furniture, but they, because this idea of exposition brought in so much interest from around the world, doubling down in that one little narrow part of furniture exposition was enough to bring in significant tax revenue to High Point. Whereas Auto World, you know, in, High po- in, in, in Flint, Michigan, wasn't enough to bring in any visitors and it closed in less than a year. So High Point did have a crisis, you know. Um, the workers who used to work in the furniture industry, many of them, you know, their major income was working part time in the market as market labor during the two months where uh, the, the, the industry was was in town and setting up the showroom. So there was a crisis in High Point. It's just that High Point was able to keep a larger portion of its historic industry and brand around its authenticity because, hey, we're the original furniture center. I mean, how many of, of these other furniture centers actually make furniture? We bleed furniture. We have furniture in our soil. We have furniture in our DNA. And they were, you know, they had the stubbornness for good and for bad of saying, we're not going to let this go. <laughs> And uh, for many years, there were many people who thought that, you know, that wasn't a great decision. And there was an area even in the community that was sort of avoided. Is, is that accurate? I'm trying to remember the name of the building. Um, it's, it's lost me, though. But they, um, I remember uh, you writing about how drivers would uh, avoid that area in order to maintain an image of the city. Well, yeah, I mean, so there, you know, one of the threads of the book is, you know, once a place becomes valued for its experience, um, there's automatically in the eyes of stakeholders and leaders, this creation of a front stage and a backstage. And so, you know, every city faces this. This is exactly what the New York showroom owners were saying to Mayor Giuliani, we thought this was our front stage and you're putting homeless housing here, homeless services here, even though this was an award-winning uh, organization that was the, a world leader in doing this stuff. Uh, they had this image of this is backstage stuff, Home, people seeing homeless bodies on the street uh, is going to cost us from selling our couches. You're mixing up the front stage and the backstage. So one of the things that High Point offered uh, and one of the things that High Point had to offer was more control. And when I say had to offer, I mean, in order to top New York, right? 
if these people are saying we're going to leave New York because High Point gives us more control, then High Point needs to offer more control in order to, to entice these people. And that's what local that's the pressure that local leaders felt and feel. And that's going to create a front stage and backstage just as, as it does in all cities. This is High Point is just an extreme example of stuff that happens everywhere. Leaders are saying, what are the parts of this city? that we want our international visitors, again, from more than 110 countries, to see. And that's going to create a front stage and a backstage and a policing, uh, a visual aesthetic policing of that front stage and backstage. And, you know, when that happens in New York, uh, that's one thing. But when that ha- when that happens in a city of 110,000, it's going to create a very a lot of tensions um, and an exclusion in such a small area is going to play out very differently. So it's a, it's a facing that type of pressure is a huge um, challenge for local public officials who want to keep this exposition, but also want justice and also want the city want local residents to have a right to their own city and all of the things that that means. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. It seems that there are competing interests, even within the same groups of people, wanting to uh, wanting to provide for uh, both the the people who have been uh, longtime residents of the of the city, but then also wanting to continue to drive economy because uh, an economy is necessary in order for uh, the city to to maintain its uh, same level of service. Yeah. And I think one of the things that occurred is, you know, when the market had grown, um, you know, the market grew substantially uh, in the 1990s up till, um, you know, around 2002, it was, you know, 10 million square feet, 11 million square feet um, during that time. And, you know, it was very easy for local officials to sell the idea in the late eighties, in the 1990s that, Hey, this is a great use for our downtown because look at all of these other downtowns, look at downtown Greensboro, look at downtown Winston-Salem, look at downtown Charlotte, 
all of these places are suffering and we're not suffering. What do you want us to turn down someone from Italy who wants to buy a building in our downtown when other cities are begging for people to buy buildings in their downtown? And so it was so easy to ride this wave of what was considered highest and best use. I mean, highest and best use was the name that I originally had for this book. It is the theme that ties throughout. That is what was constantly revisited over the years is what is the highest and best use? And that's real estate terminology for these buildings downtown. And the answers were always showrooms because the alternative was Flint, Michigan. The alternative was uh, buildings that were almost valueless. That that's the way that the, that it was painted, and oftentimes that was the reality because small cities hadn't had any type of resurgence in their downtown real estate. They were places for pawn shops and and low uh, revenue uses. And so this was a very argue, a very easy argument for local leaders to make that showrooms is the highest and best use for downtown High Point. And only two events a year. That's what's uh, most fascinating about this is that it, two events per year draws the majority of the uh, of the commerce for the area uh, throughout the year. Yeah, for the for the downtown. So here's here is what um, former mayor. Uh, Judy Mendenhall sat me down and, and, and explained to me when I first arrived in High Point. She said, you have to understand that although the, the event only occurs, you know, 14 days per year, um, people are in town for that event, setting up, planning, meeting for much longer than that. Let's say as long as two months per year. And then more than that, the transformation of these showrooms is constantly occurring. So, you know, showroom designers, as, as you know, one of them says in the book, showroom designers begin designing for the next market in six months at the moment the previous market ends. They're already in conversations as to what the new product debuts are going to be. So when you, when you model clothes, it's a pretty straightforward setup of how you're going to do the runway and what New York Fashion Week, right? But when you model furniture, furniture completely depends upon its context. So you have to create an entire context around that furniture. And that construction and contracting and redesigning and interior decorating, all of that stuff and shopping for the other items that are going to surround the debuting item. Cause you know, you have to find the uh, candy tray that's going to be on the table. You know, all of that stuff takes up the time in between the six months. And so, and then the last piece of that is that, the leases are all year. The leases are year round. Why are the leases year round? The leases are year round because 
the exhibitors need access to their showrooms to be doing all of this creative renovation for the next exhibition. And so the downtown is actually in use year round and, and is being paid for year round, despite not having any calls to the police, despite using hardly any utilities, despite not having any wear and tear because no one's there. And so for many years, this was a dream for local authorities. Excellent. So, yeah, you were talking about how... Um about how the authorities had a dream basically with the 12 year, um, the 12 year contract with the downtown uh, industry, uh, industry buildings uh, as a result of the, you know, only 14 days out of the year, having to uh, deal with large crowds of individuals. In fact, uh, you know, some people, um, designers, particularly, I think you mentioned one who, who actually moved into the area uh, as a result of North Carolina in this region of North Carolina, uh, being so well-rounded. I think that this designer may have said something along the lines of he can live cheaply uh, in this area, but also have access to a nightlife and and access to his workplace also. Is, is that accurate? Yeah, so um, I think that's chapter... Uh, let's see. I think that's chapter seven that you're talking about. And, and it's, it's really interesting. It's almost like high point waited long enough for what they were to come into fashion. (laughs) You know, high high point, high point, you know, was stubborn to wait around long enough that, you know, we saw the uh, gentrification of Brooklyn. We saw the creative class idea in all of the super cities in the United States. And we saw that idea kind of rise, begin to fall. And then people started talking about the Brooklynization of small cities. And that exact thing has been, that exact term has been used in reference to High Point. Like High Point has the that creative, you know, edge that Richard Florida was talking about. It has um, a, a lot of, cr- obviously, a tremendous amount of craft, a tremendous amount of authenticity in regards to, uh, you know, this craft was not just created yesterday in the name of, you know, being cool or hip. Um, and so High Point had a very interesting um, renaissance, especially for the folks who stuck it out, right? So w- one of the people that you're talking about is is Raymond Waits, who's a designer who moved from uh, New York, a very famous designer who moved from New York to uh, High Point kind of before all of this that I'm talking about. And he just you know, pointed out these general advantages that number one, you know, the headquarters of a lot of furniture firms, um, manufacturing firms, uh, trade firms, uh, advertising firms, design firms were still located around High Point and how great it is to, you know, to be able to drive to see someone rather than have to email or call them. 
And then just the amount of creativity that, that, that still existed in this cluster of firms. Uh, obvious, another, another um, example is the coatings industry, the varnishes and the stains, all that stuff. So someone who wanted to design a piece of furniture could have all of the relevant minds there. Um, and so people began to see High Point's advantage in that despite the fact that local officials had largely ignored all of those resources, individuals began to recognize them, especially, I mean, mostly individuals who were visiting the market, right? Began to say, wait a second, why do I keep coming to this market twice every year? Why do I keep calling this place twice every year? Why am I always emailing this place? There's a house here for $100,000. I can just get a house here. And so another designer that you referred to, you know, said, well, hey, you know, I can have, I can buy a old building for you know, $300,000 that's, that is three quarters of a mile away from the center of the city. Um, I, which is, which is within the range of the high point market bus line. Cause the city has a temporary bus line for its 80,000, 70 to 80,000 visitors. There's a temporary, amazing, amazingly complex temporary bus line that's that's created twice every, every year. And so this person said I'm within the range of this bus line during market. I'm, you know, I'm far enough uh, out of the from the downtown that I can get a place for, you know, I don't know, 300,000, 400,000, 500,000 and this place can be my manufacturing center. It can be my design center. It can be my meeting place. And during market, it can also be my showroom. And so designers like that, product developers like that began to say, well, shoot, this is a great place to be. On top of that, you know, Raymond Waits in chapter seven identifies the fact and also another furniture executive and designer by the name of Jason Phillips. They say, hey, wait a second. Um, my life doesn't have to be in High Point. I've got Charlotte right over there. I've got Raleigh right over there. I've got Greensboro right over there. I've got nature uh, and hiking all around me. I've got the ocean as a, you know, as a reasonable trip when I want to access it. There's a lot here. If I look at this place as a region, um, there's a lot that this, that this area has to offer. And so, High point, you know, basically kept on wearing. It's it's like the person who keeps on wearing the same clothes until they come into fashion again. High point kept on beating its same drum until almost almost despite in spite of itself, it became in vogue to uh, to to locate there. Yes, um, one of the and then one of the uh, things that also um, uh, you point out is we. we is that not all people were in support of, which is largely what you go into in uh, part three of your book. Not all people were necessarily on board with the, with the showroom city and with the industry. Uh, I, I think a couple of the reasons was, uh, uh, 
a couple of the reasons were because of how many people were coming into the community, but then also the increasing cost of, of maintaining their own shops and their own style of living in the community. Is that accurate also, that uh, you kind of had a divide in High Point, North Carolina? Yeah, so I mean, one of the one of the terms that really brought this project to life, or to you know, and really illuminated this project for me was Saskia Assassin's term, the industrialized sector of the economy. So, it's like you've got this industry here where the only people who are participating in it are local. You've got this little market sector here where the only people who are participating in it are let's say the the sector for pizza right? The only people who are participating in the market for this pizza shop are people who are local, who are within a delivery radius. But then next door, you have a sector that is internationalized. You have people thinking about this sector uh, in, in, in China and in Mexico and in LA and in New York. And there's people everywhere thinking about showroom real estate in High Point, where there's only, you know, at any given point, there's only, you know, 40 people thinking about pizza in High Point. So how is the pizza place ever going to be able to, as the current mayor now, now said, afford the dirt? <laughs> they can't afford the dirt to build things for residents. And so um, this became more and more obvious as other cities nearby began to have residents mobilize for for reinvesting um, in their downtown. Um, and so the, the example that local leaders in High Point had their eye on was Greenville, South Carolina. Um, but they also had their eye on Greensboro, North Carolina, just a few miles down the road. And, and it became not only a question of the tax revenue that was coming in, but the question, what is this downtown doing for us as a community? Because other places began to look at their downtown again as not a place that nobody goes because it's destitute, but as a as a community meeting place or what local leaders and activists in High Point called the living room. This is supposed to be our living room. It's not our bedroom where only, uh, you know, we associate with people who are very close to us. It's not our front room or sitting room where we only associate very formally with people. This is the downtown supposed to be a living room where everybody rubs shoulders with everybody. And we don't have that. Greensboro does. Greenville does. And so that image of a downtown, whether it's accurate or inaccurate, that image of a downtown as a living room, local residents and, and local leaders began to, to see that. Um, but another facet is these downtowns were also generating a lot of revenue, right? So it wasn't, it wasn't furniture market revenue versus no revenue. It was now furniture market revenue versus the other things that downtowns can generate um, and, and were generating in the region. Other new uses for downtowns that were coming into play. And I'd say the third thing is that, you know, showroom use while it highly while it created high values for downtown high point real estate um 
it really hurt the real estate values of the land around the market because no one, there was no reason for anyone locally to be there. So you had this land that everyone around the world was bidding on or where people around the world were bidding on it. And then you have this adjacent land that no one wanted because residents didn't care about living near the market. And so it started to have that effect too of property taxes, property tax income and, and housing values decreasing in the area around the market. And for all of these reasons, uh, more and more high pointers began to look at, you know, what could be a plan B or how can we change our plan A? And then even some of the businesses kind of found themselves inundated during the time of market. I remember um, you writing about a church that actually uh, cooked some of the meals for, um, you know, for market days. And then, uh, you know, being so overloaded that even some of the designers bringing their own cooks to their own chefs to the uh, uh, to the market days in order to feed and 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 provide for um, their employees. Yeah. So there there was this weird issue this very strange issue that the more control the market had over the downtown the less amenities there could be for when the market was in town so because the market was so successful the pizza place couldn't survive and the French restaurant that was there couldn't survive and the soul food restaurant that was there couldn't survive and the tailor couldn't survive and the dry cleaner couldn't survive. And so all of these services that people needed when they were in town was no longer in high point. So the market leaders had to begin to take responsibility to create those services temporarily uh, for when people were in town. So this involved very early on, as you said, the creation of the Parsons table, where a local church created a temporary restaurant where their parishioners cooked food or made food and sandwiches and baked goods for the market and sold them. And that was one of, you know, so you had people coming in from Milan and, and LA and they were eating, you know, lunch in a church basement. Now, this could either be extremely endearing or extremely annoying, right? Depending on who you were. But the city also, the uh, the market, you know, in, in uh, 2000, the city founded a market authority to oversee the market. The city and the state founded a market authority to oversee the high point market. And this authority began becoming more systematic about creating temporary restaurant spaces um, and making sure that there was a systematic creation of temporary amenities for um, for the market goers. And this became this became dubbed by by residents and and visitors alike as I've heard it called the mini Manhattan. So, you know, the, the, the high point market leaders had to create this mini Manhattan, you know, two months out of the year. And that required a lot of, you know, Andres Duani, who came to town, the urban planner and architect Andres Duani called it a logistical genius to create this mini Manhattan uh, two times every year. So what is uh, a final question to sort of close up uh, our conversation about your book? What is the city doing now to, to you know, manage the different points of view, uh, both from residents and, you know, for industry in terms of trying to create some sort of a negotiation uh, that both parties can deal with? 
or has there been a solution or resolution uh, made yet? So one of the things we we haven't discussed is um, that a major entity, International Market Centers, funded by Bain Capital, uh, purchased 60, you know, the majority of the downtown. So all of these, um, all of these uh uh, entities that had owned various showrooms, many of these entities were now rolled up into this huge fund uh, uh, that was funded by private equity. And so this created, instead of multiple stakeholders, you know, dozens and dozens and dozens of stakeholders bidding against each other in regards to showrooms, this now created one large umbrella organization. So this has created a new reality in High Point. Um, and it, it turns out that International Market Centers actually has considerable interest in the downtown being a place that had amenities and understands the that, you know, when, when you're selling the high point market, you're not just selling showrooms, but you're selling a, a space. And this space has to have some type of character to it. This space has to have some type of community feel to it. So part three is, is all about the local mobilizations to take the downtown back, to reclaim the downtown. And one of the key leaders in that movement, Jay Wagner, is now the mayor. Uh, so a lot of those ideas are finding their way into now policy in a way that they hadn't before. Excellent. And, and uh you know, that, that leads into a whole different uh, area in policy and not just High Point, North Carolina, but from cities across the uh, across the country and internationally, how to uh, how to create an experience that is conducive for everyone uh, through policy. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. A absolutely. And, and, and one of the things that the High Point case offers because of its extreme variables, you know, it, all of these extreme aspects of the case, it shows leaders who are really trying all of the different methods that cities around the United States attempt to do just this very thing. So I have a, a diagram in part three of the book that overviews seven of these different approaches visually. Uh, you know, how do residents reclaim a downtown? And so I think there's lessons here uh, in regards to this balance and this right to the city. Visitors have a right to the city. Residents have a right to the city. Um, how do we balance this? And I think there's lessons here uh, for, for all cities in this. Yes, and uh, as we discussed prior to our uh, prior to our interview today, uh, you really um, take great pride in part three uh, as being sort of all previous chapters setting the foundation for uh, this final chapter and how uh, how how it had all come together for uh, you know for this larger discussion to take place and for the people to take back their city. Yeah, it was a massive fight. Uh, it was a massive fight. It certainly goes back uh, at least, you know, the 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 fight to take the the downtown back from the furniture industry goes back at least to the early '80s, when Mayor Mendenhall first raised this idea of is it good for our downtown to be completely showrooms, and that question became the the 
the, the pivotal question for the city up until the present moment. And that's the question, which is essentially the question of, is it best for highest and best use to reign in a place? And that's the question that they've been asking for the past 40 years. Yeah, right. It's a million dollar business, a billion dollar business, but uh, is it serving everybody uh, equally well? And how can we make it? Right. I mean, what what can we do? Uh, how can we change the structure of it? This this requires government. You know, so one of the things you see in this book is a lot of uh, conservative politicians, you know, leaning on government to constrain what many call this beast. I mean, the market is a beast. It's a it's a one billion to five billion dollar beast, depending on how you measure it. And, you know, as as one of the activists, Elijah Lovejoy said, you know, how can a little fifty thousand dollar pizza joint stand up against this beast? Well, it can't. It requires intervention. Uh, and, and that's one of the the role of intervention uh, is one of the key themes of part three. Well, thank you for uh, being on the show today. But, you know, there's this burning question that I always like to uh, ask my guests on the show. And that is, what are you working on now? I, I know that this is this book is, uh, you know, still very ripe fruit. And uh, um, but are, are you working on your next project? Yes, uh, absolutely. In fact, um, you know, because this book uh was such a, a slow boil. I've very much been working on other things during this time. And, and what I'm doing now um, is creating, a, a, is developing a book that's, that's, um, that's founded on a framework that I call the D's and the Re's. Uh, my first book was on gentrification and called, you know, Gentrifier with Jason Patch and Mark Lamont Hill. And, um, the, the idea of gentrification is that there is a reinvestment, a reinvigorating, a revaluing that is occurring. And that presupposes a devaluing, a disinvestment, um, a, a what I call a demarcation or a boundary making around a place. And so I'm looking at what are generalizable trends that occur around the world in regards to these D processes and these re processes uh, to help us think more, 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 more constructively about how to bring change. Excellent. I look forward to uh, having you on the show once this book comes to uh, fruition uh, and, uh, and talking to you about this, about your forthcoming book. Let's just put it that way. Thank you again, Dr. Schlickman, for being on the show today. I, uh, um, I, I hope it was just as much of a joy for you. It was. Thank you, Michael, so much for your time. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.